You're listening to Driving Law, a podcast by Kyla Lee about all things related to the rules of the road. Hello, and welcome to another episode of Driving Law with Kyla Lee. This is another episode that does not have Kyla Lee to introduce it. It's Paul Doroshenko here. The reason that I'm here is because Kyla is at home recovering with uh, the coronavirus. So we're going to start today's podcast with a discussion with Jan Semenov. Jan Semenov is an um, expert in breath testing, the effects of uh, alcohol and other intoxicants on the human body. And he lives in Saskatoon. We're going to get him on the line in just a minute. He has published an article uh, today on his um, on Counterpoint, which is a journal that he is the editor of, uh, and it deals with uh, homemade hand sanitizer recipes that could help protect against the coronavirus. So I'm going to dial him up now and get Jan Semenov on. Okay, so I've got Jan on the line. How are you doing? I'm doing great. How are you? Well, I mean, I'm in isolation. Uh, Kyla is at home recovering from the coronavirus. She seems to have a uh, fever most nights, uh, which sounds quite unpleasant. And uh, you managed to avoid the conference where she uh, contracted this. I did. My wife had a a pretty bad flu, and we were concerned that I was going to come down with it. Not quite sure how it was going to proceed. I thought best not be patient zero for my friends. I would just bow out of the conference. And lo and behold, ended up <laughs> probably being a good decision. Have either of you been tested to see whether or not you had coronavirus? They're not testing in Saskatchewan um, unless there's a need to. They're so, testing healthcare workers and they're testing people that present with symptoms at the hospital, but they're only testing on an as-needed basis. So as far as you know, you might have the coronavirus or, or have Oh, you know, it's a certain... Yeah, absolutely. And I mean, we're certainly seeing symptoms across the board. Some people are reporting symptoms that are extremely light. Other people are saying it's the worst flu I ever had. And most people, you know, 80% of the people don't really require hospitalization. They're taking care of it at home. Uh, My wife certainly had symptoms that were uh, consistent with uh, COVID-19. And it's entirely possible that she was positive. Who knows? Well, I'm wondering about myself because I had like three days there. Uh, I had a, what I would think was maybe a slight fever, but I have no no thermometer. I'm in I'm in isolation after flying back from Ohio, right? Um, and right. I was coughing for a while, and I had the brutal headaches that people describe. Um, and uh, since then, I've improved completely, and I feel great. So I don't know. I mean, I flew I back with Kyla, so right. Same airplane. I think this is the big problem. It's 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 like to segue back here. It's almost like DWI enforcement statistics. You only know how many people you've caught if you're keeping track and if you're out going out and actively looking for those numbers. We're only going to know how many people are positive for coronavirus if we test everybody. Yeah, well, that's and, the thing. You know, Kyla would be a classic example of a person who is a presumptive case but has never been tested and so she doesn't even count in the presumptive numbers. Yeah, I know. And when this is all said and done, we're never going to know what the actual, you know, death rate is and what the rate of people were who ended up with permanent lung damage and so forth. Maybe we should start with right. that. 
why don't we start discussing yeah. that? Because I, you know, there's been a lot. There's a lot to discuss about breath testing here, uh, arising out of COVID-19. And one of the things that we've seen is a significant portion of the people, even young people, um, if they ended up with a um, pneumonia, uh, a, a, a significant portion appear to have 20 to 30 percent uh, reduction in lung capacity. And you know, I, I just am trying to wrap my head around some of the issues with respect to uh, uh, breath testing as a result of that. I mean, well, that's going to be a big <laughs> problem in the long run. Um, and just so everybody understands, I have a little bit of background in the breath testing or lung function of breath testing as well. Um, about almost 30 years ago now, I was involved in a study done at Royal University Hospital here in Saskatoon where we looked at the ability of persons with chronic obstructive pulmonary disorders, asthma, and the like, and their ability to actually provide a breath test. And we found that under certain circumstances, uh, people with uh, low, it's called forced expiratory values, we're going to be unable to provide a breath test. Now, if we're talking about a 20 to 30% reduction in lung capacity um, for people who have recovered from a COVID-19 event, then certainly they're not necessarily going to be able to have the ability to provide physically that breath test. Well, and it's important to remember that there's three things that have to happen for provision of a breath test. You have to blow long enough and you have to blow hard enough. And then there's, you know, different instruments have different requirements. Some of them have slope detectors and things like that built into them. Let's take a look at the suitability of the sample. But in the absence of being able to blow long enough and hard enough, you're going to see a spike in refusals. So it's, it's going to be interesting to take a look at that a year or so down the road. Well, the really sad thing is, I mean, you know it and I know it because, you know, we spend so much time dealing with drinking driving cases, uh, but the general population is not going to understand that basically people who have had COVID-19 and suffered the worst of it are going to end up wrongly accused of, of refusing to provide samples down the road because, you know, I'll tell you, the police officer training in British Columbia doesn't tell you to investigate a medical issue. Uh, it you know if the person expresses a medical issue, maybe you should write it down, but it just operates under the assumption that the person is refusing if the officer right. doesn't manage to get a a, a reading. And well, it, let, let me <laughs> let me speak to that really quickly because this was the issue that I had all those years ago. I had a, I had a case where we had actually stopped a motorist um, uh, who exhibited some signs and symptoms of not so much impairment, but he had certainly been consuming alcohol. And I made a roadside breath demand for him. Well, he was yelling at me and swearing at me and practically spitting in my face. He was so angry. But then when it came time to providing his breath sample, he would yell at me, I'm asthmatic, I can't blow. And so we were looking, and I had just been trained by the Royal Canadian Mounted Police on the operation of these alert J3A devices, uh, one of the early breath testing devices. I want one. I want an alert so badly. (laughs) Yeah, that's... They were, they were a horrible unit in comparison to the technology today. But anyway, Go ahead. so I, I got in touch with the RCMP and I said, well, okay, so you you, gave, you said in the training that um, a person with asthma can provide a sample. Give me the, the, the citation for that or give me the reference for that. Give me the information so that I can substantiate this in court. Well, we don't have it, they said, but we know that people can blow. 
So I, I actually put that, that's such a that's such a common such a common reply you get from police officers. Well, yeah, we don't yeah. you know. It's, anyway, go ahead. We just know it's yeah. possible. Yeah. So so I actually phoned alcohol countermeasure systems in Mississauga, Ontario, the manufacturer of the alert. I explained my situation. Hey, you know, you, you say that person with asthma can provide a breath sample. Let's see your data on that. Well, we don't have any, they said, but we know that a person can blow. And so I actually had to go up to Royal University Hospital. I found a, a respiratory medicine uh, specialist, and I, and I gave him this uh, alert, and I said, do you think a person with asthma could blow? And he said, well, let's go find out. So we walked up onto the ward, and we had a number of people who were able to provide a sample and some that were not. And we ended up doing a study. We tested 112 patients and found that, you know, with a, a force vital capacity less than about 1.5 liters, it would be absolutely impossible for a person to provide a breath sample. They could blow hard enough, but they just didn't have the, the chutzpah to carry it through for the five seconds that's required. And uh, another, another study was done in England a year later by uh, Briggs. And their study confirmed our data that they, they have found a FBC of 1.6 liters. So I think what's going to have to happen, Paul, for one of you know you or Kyla, if you've got a, a refusal case, you're going to have to have that that client go off to their family physician. They're going to have to do a spirometry test, and we'll get the results. And if they have FBC of you know 1.5, 1.6, but let, let me tell you my problem with that. My problem with that. First of all, I mean. Problem number one is that the people are put in this situation when they shouldn't be put in this situation in the first place. The only reason that they're there is because the uh, uh, is because the police just operate under the assumption that everybody's guilty when they don't provide a sample. But my bigger concern about that is that okay, fine, go to the doctor. You're feeling good. You go to the doctor. You're feeling strong. You provide a good sample. What happens, it's a different situation when you're with the police officer. Unless the doctor is testing you 15 or 20 minutes later, you can't say that at that time that you're in the doctor's office that you're in the same physical condition you were in when you were being dealt with by the police officer three days before or three weeks before. You know what I'm saying? Oh, you're, you're absolutely right. Absolutely. And, and there's, there's a second cause to, a part to that, too. In, uh, in the study that we, we were able to show that when people were, were flustered, when they were nervous, when they were upset, they don't have the same force vital capacity that they do when they're calm, right? Yeah, I, I've tested people uh, in the office, like staff of my office, who just got so nervous with the testing that they couldn't provide a sample in my office. Right. Right? And so yeah, I, exactly. You know, they're not drinking. It's not, it's not like they're in trouble. It's usually a drinking parties. We've had one drink or something like that. And, they, you know, I tell them they've got to try. And they're so nervous that they can't even do it then. So you wonder about people. Uh, it sounds like you're drinking there. You, uh, I hope you poured yourself a cocktail. I have a beer tonight because, you know, I know I'm not driving anywhere. Um, the, the, uh, how, how could you tell? I'm sipping on a scotch right now. Good for you. Um, that's what everyone should be doing. It turns out uh, British Columbia today declared that uh, uh, alcohol sales is an essential service. So I'm glad to see that because um, many well, of us Saskatchewan could use a did drink. The same thing. Did they? Saskatchewan did the same thing. Yeah, uh, and Premier Mo said this is not the time for us to have a whole bunch of people um, having detox issues and having to go in for treatment for that. Well, that's a good point. It was I guess. Good, I 
I didn't think fairly, of that. Fairly rational point. I was just thinking to myself that the um, you know all of the distilleries out there could be producing hand sanitizer instead of producing you know vodka or gin or whatever, uh, which segues nicely into your uh, article that you've got uh, published in your journal Counterpoint today. Uh, homemade right. hand sanitizer recipes that could help protect against coronavirus. Can you just give me the like the briefest rundown of that? I read it. It's good. Sure. Yeah, uh, what we did is, uh, you know, the problem with this entire episode with COVID-19 and coronavirus is that there's so much crappy information out there floating around on social media. And, uh, you know, I've had, I've had a number of fairly responsible and learned people get in touch with me and say, hey, listen, can you write an article or find an article that explains, you know, what the, what the truth is about hand sanitizers? So I was able to find at least... We use articles from a company called the, or situation called the, the Conversation. And this was actually two researchers from Royal Holloway University of London. Uh, they're, they're biologists and uh, PhDs in biology. And they uh, talked about hand sanitizers here and, and took a look at some of the uh, available recipes that were floating around on social media and looked at the efficacy of these actual um, uh, formulations. And th there's, there's two issues here that are of, of main concern. Number one, um, if you want to put a hand sanitizer on it, you want it to be efficacious, you want it to actually sanitize your hands, then it should work, right? Well, yeah. I mean, um, there's lots of things you could probably be rubbing on your hands that won't sanitize your hands and might provide the perfect breeding ground for the, for the virus. I mean, if it yeah. provides a great host for the virus, you you could do something much worse, actually, by using something that's homemade, I suppose. Well, and, and that's the issue that they're raising. They're saying, look, even we're going to need to have a solution of about 70% isopropanol or 80% ethanol in order to kill the microorganisms. Um, so if you can get anywhere between, say, 65% alcohol and higher, you've got a fighting chance of killing the organisms. But they also point out that the over-the-counter hand sanitizers typically fall around 55 to 60%. They average around 57% ethanol or isopropanol in them. So, you know, as long as we're getting that percentage, they're going to be, they're going to be somewhat reliable. What is the it they're putting in there to make the gelatinous? Like, what is it? Because if you were to have just, uh, like, you know, I, I know how to operate a still and I've made vodka before and I've made alcohol at 95%, but it's not like in this gelatinous state. If you were to put it on your hand, it would just spill out of your yeah, hand and well, yeah. it won't evaporate as fast as most people think, uh, but it will spill out of your hand and you won't be able to get it all over your hand. So what, do you know what that gelatinous thing is that, that they put in there? Yeah, they're using, they're using glycerol, which is basically a, a, a form of gelatin. And and so it mixes and it mixes okay area. with ethanol or isopropanol. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. In fact, the World Health Organization came out with a formulation, and uh, I've actually on the on you the have a link to article, it. I think, I've yeah. got a link. Yeah, I've got a link to the WHO's um, guide to local production of hand rub formulations. They call them, and there you're looking at glycerol. Uh, well, okay, here's, here's, here's the formula. Basically, you're looking at a high concentration of alcohol, either ethanol, or which is the alcohol that we drink, or isopropyl alcohol, 
which is rubbing alcohol. Um, and then hydrogen peroxide. Now the hydrogen peroxide is used basically just to kill any microorganisms that are inside the glycerol and that <laughs> well it's being made. Isn't hydrogen and peroxide then, uh, like mostly uh, bleach and water? Yeah. Yeah, like hydrogen peroxide, peroxide is not, not, is not much more than just some bleach, as uh, I recall. Yeah, kind of. No, it's H two O two, so it's got an extra oxygen bond in there. Okay. Um, yeah. So bleach is is is. I remember I remember reading anyway. that it was like mostly bleach, and that you could use bleach the same thing it, and just it, water well, it down, and it's the same it, thing as hydrogen peroxide. Yeah, well, I mean, hydrogen peroxide has a bleaching action. That's why a lot of people use it to um, uh, cover up their hairline issues and stuff like that. I used to bleach anyway, my hair with it when I was a teenager. Main, yeah, <laughs> glycerol is the main component here, and it's the stuff that gives it that um, uh, jelly-like substance. But, you know, interesting, I was in, I was in the local uh, uh, liquor control establishment today, and they had some hand sanitizer that was made by one of our local distilleries. I'm going to give a little plug for Lucky Bastard Distilleries. There you go, the Saskatoon, Saskatoon Distillery. They're, they're actually quite yeah. famous. I think we've talked about it before. I don't think we've ever talked about it on the podcast, but we've talked about it before. And you gave well, me a bottle of, uh, I think, gin from there. And yeah, uh, it was yeah, good. I mean, it wasn't outstanding. It wasn't, you know, like there's some, <laughs> I've made gin. I think my own gin is probably as good, um, but it was good. And I certainly appreciate it, especially because it's famous. Go out there uh, and yeah. buy some Lucky Bastard. Right. Well, and so the interesting thing... Didn't he win the lottery or something? Yeah, I was going to say that. They call, they call themselves Lucky Bastard. Because there was actually two guys that started it. One is a chemist, and the other one is a, is a physician. So, you know, if there's, if there's two guys that are out there brewing up hand sanitizer that should be doing it, it's the distillery run by the physician and the chemist. You know, there's a distillery in Kelowna. Uh, this guy should be called the Lucky Bastard. It's a distillery in Kelowna. I can't remember the name now. It'll come to me. Um, but um, the guy who opened it, uh, just after he opened it, he won 649 He won a million bucks in the right. 649 So he, he basically put all his money into the distillery. I think his name is Mike. Well, I that's... That's anyway. what these two dudes from Saskatoon did. Yeah. So anyway, the, 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 this World Health Organization formula is good. The other one that um, has been provided in our article from the University of London is probably a pretty good sanitizer. Um, the, the problem is some of the over-the-counter solutions that people are going to be using can actually dry out your hands. And once you dry out... Um, uh, the skin on your hands, what it's going to do is form micro lesions. And now we've got a route of entry, route of entry for the for the virus to get in past the skin. The skin's a very good barrier. Uh, well, when I flew back with Kyla, we were sitting side by side in the airplane, and um, the uh, I was using a bottle of hand sanitizer that uh, I had in my pocket, and I was using it fairly regularly, and I was giving it to her fairly regularly as well, and she was complaining that her skin was getting dry, um, and uh, she kept using lotion on it after the hand sanitizer, and I kept thinking to myself, the lotion is probably providing a great space for any virus to live. Um, so, and she was complaining that her hands were getting cracked. Anyway, this is well, all the anecdotal yeah, you know, aspect of two people who travel and one of us <laughs> ended up with a virus. I don't think you could take anything sure. from that, people. Well, 
you know, the, the problem is, is again, that, that once the skin has got these micro lesions, now you've got a rudimentary. So probably by putting on the, uh, you know, the emollient or the aloe vera gel or whatever she was using to keep her hands moist, probably was helping her. Yeah, and, may, may have been that's, what, that, yeah. that's what these, yeah, I mean, they're talking about these emollients being necessary in the hand sanitizers. Um, the problem is you don't want to have that lower alcohol concentration uh, hitting the lower end of the effective range. So, you, you know, you still have to have enough alcohol in the in the juice to make it worthwhile so i think it's worth people uh if anybody's actually interested in this finding this article um on uh in your journal can uh you just tell everybody this sort of the citation and how they can get there sure go to counterpointjournal.com but is it there's a dash between counterpoint and journal so counterpoint-journal.com and the front page will take you uh right to the the whole series of free articles and in the free previews, I've got the hand sanitizer article. I've also got an article on COPD or chronic obstructive pulmonary disorder and breath testing. Um, and so that will kind of segue back into what we were talking about earlier with the uh, uh, reduced lung function of, of different individuals. Now, there's one thing ability I, to provide a breath test. I wanted to talk to you about because the um, I, I don't know what uh, approved screening device you guys use in Saskatchewan. I know in Alberta and uh, British Columbia and PEI, they use uh, the AlcoSensor uh, FST. Um, in right. Ontario, I think they use a Draeger model. Uh, but the AlcoSensor FST in British Columbia replaced the AlcoSensor 4 DWF. The AlcoSensor 4 DWF is still an approved screening device. So for those who are just listening, who are casual listeners and not lawyers, an approved screening device is approved by uh, order of counsel to be used for the purposes of screening people. It's a roadside breath tester, basically. Um, and um, when they replaced the uh, AlcoSensor 4 DWF with the AlcoSensor FST in British Columbia, one of the things that, um, well, there's a few things that we noticed. One was that uh, there was more refusal cases, uh, which speaks to the functioning of the device and, and unfortunately more innocent people charged with refusal. But the other thing that got me was that the AlcoSensor FST uh, does not have a one-way valve when you blow. So with the AlcoSensor 4, you blow. If you suck back, you can't suck because it just immediately stops because there's a one-way valve there. And I never right. thought about, you know, I thought about it for the investigative purpose of ensuring people aren't sucking back. Like I knew, I noticed on the, I've got a um, uh, Intoxilizer 400D, which mm -hmm. is, was the ASD in um, Alberta for a long time. And I've got one of those. Right. I could suck a sample. Um, you have to suck like crazy and you, you got it. Your lungs have to be really up to it. But I could suck a sample of zero, right? I could have alcohol in my body and I could suck a sample through that thing. I've never been able to do that with an AlcoSensor FST, but the FST does not have a one-way valve. And now that I'm thinking about the one-way valve, the one-way valve really protects you from any pathogen on the device. Well, I, I don't think that's going to be an issue. As long as they're using a fresh mouthpiece with every sample. The way the intoxicator... But, but hang on, hang on. Let, let me tell you my theory okay. before, you, before you tell me. Okay, let me finish my thought, okay. I guess. I'm going to interrupt sure, you. Sure. You're the expert. Okay. I'm just a guy who's done it a lot of times. The The mouthpiece snaps in, and the mouthpiece is, uh, it's an entire unit. It, it exhausts out the top. It vents out the top. 
but it has two right. holes for two ports. And both ports are fixed on the device. One port, as right. you know from the outside in, is the flow meter. And the second port is the fuel cell. And each of them have a hose down into that port. And who's mm -hmm. to say that on the top of the port, the nipple for it, that there isn't some pathogen from a previous person? I've read that this, um, the coronavirus path pathogen can live for 30 hour, uh, three days sorry, on a plastic three surface. Days, yeah. Um, yeah. and then there's a, it's a, it's a vinyl tube, like a clear vinyl tube that runs down to the flow meter. Uh, okay. and I don't know what it goes to. I haven't taken the fuel cell apart in a, in an FST, but who's to say that it's not stuck and living on there is my point. Okay. Now, I, well, I, I, <laughs> I suppose it could, and I'll, I'll tell you, I'll tell you my concern with that is that I had an opportunity to go to Megatech in Edmonton to take a look at their repair facilities. Uh, for for the intoxilizers. Megatech and, does it in Edmonton, <laughs> not Davtech? Uh, no, I think they're Megatech at the time. Davtech's in Ontario. Yeah, I know. Davtech's got service places in British Columbia. I didn't think Megatech oh, had it, but in any event, Megatech well, I know was in well, Alberta Meg providing a lot of these police things. Yeah, well, I mean, you know, I was in your old stomping grounds in Edmonton, actually, uh, at the Megatech's repair facilities. As I was going through, um, I noticed that there was one bench where these guys were taking care of the optical bench. So they've got their work work area set out, and they're, they're taking apart the optical bench out of a Toxilizer 5000. And uh, over in the corner on the bench is a baby bottle scrub brush. Yeah. And I, and I asked the guy, I said, why do you need a baby bottle scrub brush? And he says, well, listen, the, the sample chamber on a Toxilizer 5000 is about 11 inches long and three quarters of an inch in diameter. It's a stainless steel tube. And there's lenses at both ends with little ports that you can flow in and flow out with the air to pass through this, yeah, this yeah. sample chamber. Yeah. And then the inside, he said, I mean, think about it. Your breath is gross. It's dirty. You've got pathogens. You've got people that haven't brushed their teeth in three weeks. You know, guys blowing their viruses in. And then that tube is heated up and it's moist. And he says, it's just like a little Petri dish in there. And at the end, when we have to do our annual servicing on these instruments, uh, what we do is we pop the lenses off both ends of the sample tube and rub the baby bottle scrub brush through so we can clean out the mold and the crap and corruption, his words, crap and corruption, that's on the inside of the uh, sample yuck. tube. Yuck. <laughs> yuck. Oh, yeah. I'm thinking that's where garden gnomes grow to breed or something like that. That's just gross, right? Well, I keep thinking so, Kyla and I do this, you know, can you fail it? And we blow through the device and we've got these lights shining on us. And my eyesight's not great, but my, like, my my focal, my ability to to uh, to um, focus at about 20 inches from my face, 10 inches from my face, I can see the spittle shooting out of the right? thing. So oh, it's... Yeah, well, and, 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 there's another point, though, too, Paul, that, that those little tubes that you're talking about on the intoximeter FST, um, those, one of them is called a Venturi tube, and so it, you had identified it correctly. It's to measure the flow to make sure. Remember, I said they have to blow hard enough and long enough. So when they start blowing long enough, then it activates a timer on the inside of the software of this device, right? Well, what I've done when I've done servicing on those instruments is that, again, there's dried spit and, you know, chewing tobacco remnants and crap and corruption that forms oh, yeah. on that little small tube. And the, the diameter of that tube is probably 32nd or maybe even a 64th of an inch. It is, 
it is. It's a pinhole. Really, really tiny. Yeah. 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 It's a it's a pinhole, and so all that you only have to have a small amount of con, uh, contamination that, that traps that little small tube. Now all of a sudden, the unit just it doesn't read the flow, which means it doesn't activate the tone, it doesn't activate the timer, and the cop figures, hey, this guy's not blowing hard enough. When in fact, they are um, units mm. that have not been properly serviced. And, and there's there's contamination in that venturi tube. But I want to get back so to the, I want issue. to get back to the issue of the one way valve. Like so, in the Alco Center Four, if you tried to suck back, it stopped. Like it was an absolute right. seal. You would stop sucking mm-hmm. immediately. And it was, it was I was I was very impressed with it. I noticed that sometimes it was a bit of a problem. Uh, I did um, have occasion where you know I used to buy these valves by the like bag of a hundred because I would demonstrate to people how this device worked for the longest time and I did find ones where there was like two um, two of the little discs inside the valve instead of one and so yeah. you couldn't blow and you know there was potentially other problems with them but uh, for the most part pretty well designed valve same manufacturer produces the next device and it doesn't have any valve and I thought that valve all along was really just to deal with refusal situations where people sucked but it seemed to me that it's, it seems to me now that it was a reasonable step to protect the subject who's blowing from any pathogen in the device. Now, an Alco Sensor 4 has a long manifold after that valve, and so you could see the mm-hmm. you know plenty of opportunity for pathogens. But now that you look at the uh, at the FST, and I've been on the uh, intoximeter, intoximeters, depending on how you want to pronounce it, website, and they seem to be. I, I get the sense they're somewhat terrified of the implications of not having a one-way valve, of the pathogen being sucked back by somebody you know who's drunk and sucks. Yeah. Or you yeah, know, yeah. Like, so this is uh, this to me is telling me that the BC government should be pulling out all their Alco sensor fours and, and using them at least during the time that we're dealing with a pandemic, because. You are a subject at the roadside at a roadblock. You pull up to a counterattack or whatever the hell they call them in various different provinces. I forget what they used to call them. In, I never liked the counterattack is what we call them in BC. Uh, what did they call them in Alberta? Oh, this is what happens when you've had a beer. Um, anyway, you pull up. Uh, the guy in the car in front of you just blew a, you know, blew a pass, but he has coronavirus and you're the next person to blow. And when you go to blow, you inhale. Yeah, I think that's a problem. Uh, Certainly, uh, there have been known transmissions of uh, pathogens from breath tests. Uh, The concern that we've got certainly is that fresh mouthpieces are always used. Uh, Like you, I've... But but it's the mouthpiece is one thing. It's the the, the one-way valve is my issue. That's what's freaking me out. Well, the one-way valve... Yeah, I think I think you raise a valid point there. I would also suspect that those devices during coronavirus, it'll be interesting to see how much enforcement action is done on impaired driving in the next little while. Because I think, first of all, the cop wants to stay as far away from your breath and your spit as possible, and I don't blame him now. Um, well, I talk to a bunch of officers who are terrified about it, especially the old guys who like basically retired and then came back. You know, yeah. <laughs> Uh, a, a number of them, I'm told, are are um, have been parked at home basically, 
they're trying to work from home you, however they can in in British Columbia at least. Um, are you getting Are you getting that you're getting the retired guys getting called back in? Oh, they 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 they're working from home, so it's not it's the retired guys who went back. Okay, so they they served their 25, 30 years, whatever they've worked, they've they've retired. They came back to work because there was a shortage of staff in some detachments and some departments. Right. Um, and now they're there, and you know they've got various. Some of them have health issues. Some of them are just older. Uh, and they're, they're happen to be really good, experienced traffic officers, very good mm-hmm. at their jobs. Uh, you, you want them there, you know, as a society, you want them there. Uh, but the um, officers in British Columbia, I'm told, uh, if they are older, are being, are working from home. And the young officers mm-hmm. are out there trying to deal with all the spousal assaults that apparently are happening right now and, and the traffic. Uh, offenses and the idea is that when that first um, sort of uh, wave of officers get sick, if they do, then they they'll pull out the old guys and the old guys are, are scared of breath testing because you know the, the Alka Sensor FST it goes blowing out the top right into your face. Um, there yeah. was a suggestion um, I, you know I, I put two videos up on our website to explain a safer way for officers to do it and I, I put the cleaning instructions on uh, that I could find online and right. uh, from uh, Intoximeters and and uh, and also Alcopro, which is a, a company that services um, these devices and is an authorized reseller. Uh, and um, some officers, uh, I, I got some reply from officers that I'm in touch with who said, well, you know, they're thinking that they should hold it upside down, which means it's just basically blowing all over you. You know, my, my theory is that if you're using an FST, you're probably better to get the person to tilt their head back so the air blows back toward them. Uh, but, of course, you also have to wear uh, rubber gloves. Well, all you have to do, I all wanna... you have to do is have the, per- person, have the person turn 45 or 60 degrees askew from you and have it blow kind of, you know, at that angle off so that it's not blowing into your face. Probably if you blow it's it sideways and if you hold from the back, yeah. then it would blow away. Yeah, that'd, yeah. Be, that'd be a good way to do it. I didn't think of that. I, I guess I thought up or well, down. <laughs> so yeah, this is thinking out of the so, box. You're thinking sideways. I'll tell you, I'll tell you though, an interesting thing. In 1997 here in Saskatchewan, um, I was actually designated as the infectious disease control officer for the, for the, for the police department. And my first task was to write an infectious control protocol guide. Um, it had been mandated by Occupational Health and Safety in Saskatchewan for all first responders. And because, look, in those days, we were concerned about SARS and MERS and AIDS and things like that. And, you know, we... we wasn't SARS, wasn't SARS then, uniform. but yes. Yeah. Yeah. Anyway, yeah, go ahead. There was, there was lot, lots of stuff, you know, but AIDS was obviously, HIV and AIDS was the biggest one. And, you know, not well, under, you not well understood at the time, so, yeah. No, not at all, not at all. And, and so the first thing I did is having to write this guide is I phoned up police agencies from across Western Canada and said, hey, I've been you know, tasked to do this. Can you send me what you've got? And the <laughs> universal response across Western Canada was, no, we don't have anything, so when you're done, you send it to us. Yeah, I thought, so the, I respo- I thought the response would be, what? what, do you, what, what oh. Yeah. Now, yeah, I never thought of that. I actually just sent you privately, Paul, the, the, the guide that I wrote. You can't obviously disseminate it, but I just thought you might be interested in taking a look at it. And, and so I, I wrote these infectious control 
guidelines for first responders. And the, the big thing was the concern that the officers had was, you know, I'm not washing up. Some guy spits on my shirt. I'm burning that shirt. Some guy bleeds on me. I'm burning that uniform. I am not bothering to wash that. I'm certainly not taking it home and sticking it in the family laundry, nor should they, right? So, uh, you know, certainly these are these are major concerns for, for first responders. And I, I, had, I had worked as an ambulance, a primary care paramedic, for four years before joining the police department, so I had some kind of background in this stuff. Um, I, I, and I, I teaching just, people hand-washing and standard precautions was, was tough. As we're, as we're dealing with this and as we're thinking about this, I, I just like, there's all these things that I never thought about because I was never forced to think about it. And I think that's basically right. what happened there. Um, and it's a natural human thing. I mean, we, we in British Columbia plan for some things. We plan for earthquakes. You know, we've got some really good earthquake planning. Uh, mm-hmm. What was our pandemic planning like? I don't know. You know, I, the government's struggling each day, and I have to tell you, I, 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 I gained some confidence in our government listening to the, you know, their daily briefings. But I right. can see that nobody had planned to deal with a pandemic. Um, I want to switch gears for just a second. We've got uh, about sure. 10 more minutes that we've got to do, and I want to do something that, um, because you're my primary guest, and you're going to be my guest to the end, and it's great, because you and I could probably <laughs> talk for about 20 hours, um, especially yeah. if we have a couple of drinks. Um, yeah, no, yeah. You know, let me fill up again, and we'll go for another 40. For the, listener, <laughs> for the listeners out there, you should know that you and I, Jan and I, and uh, and Jan and I, and Kyla, or Kyla and Jan, we all can just go on about this stuff because it's uh, this is our lives, and uh, right. maybe may somewhat pathetic, but it's sometimes interesting and sometimes funny. And I'm going to tell you about a funny story as uh, part of the ridiculous driver of the week. <laughs> Ridiculous driver of the week. So, you on every okay. week we have the ridiculous driver of the week. And this ridiculous driver is uh, is pretty ridiculous. So, uh, this was in um, well, it says Toronto here in the news story. York Regional Police um, have investigated a bunch of stunt driving recently, but the worst here was some guy who was driving at. 99 kilometers over the speed limit in a BMW. It's a white BMW. That's the standard thing that you would expect. Uh, and uh, it's because he was going 149 in a 50 zone. Um, they've got a photograph of the vehicle there, and they've got a photograph of the moving radar at 149. Um, even with my bad eyesight, I could see that. Uh, 149 kilometers an hour. And this was uh, um, apparently some problem that they are currently experiencing, not just in uh, Ontario. I've heard it from a couple of police officers been in touch with this week. Um, in British Columbia as well, because the roads are like the Autobahn. It's like wide open. Um, there's, uh, there's very few cars. And you think this is the one time you can wind up that German car to do sort of uh, Autobahn speeds, 149. That's a nice... Uh, a comfortable, slow, casual speed on the Autobahn. <laughs> but uh, 149 kilometers an hour in Canada is uh, is very illegal. And uh, people should be reminded, during this time that we're dealing with a pandemic, don't be a fucking asshole. Like, don't be a jerk. 
Um, the, I, 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 there's, the police are stretched. First responders are stretched. I heard uh, a um, fire department in, uh, in um, the lower mainland of British Columbia here are wearing their full suits, their full fire suits when they're going in to deal with like a potential person who may be having a heart attack because it's, they don't have N95 masks, they don't have the rest of the outfit that they would need to be able to protect themselves from the potential of the coronavirus. Right. And once they've been exposed to coronavirus, what happens? You take those those fire uh, uh, firefighters outside the of... Crew. Yeah, the crew is out. They're isolated for yeah. two weeks. There could be there could be 11 guys on that crew that are, that are done for a couple of weeks. Yeah. So, um, uh, you know, my advice to the population of Canada is don't be a jerk right now. Uh, do your best to uh, abide by the law. Don't go 99 kilometers an hour over the speed limit. In the lower mainland right now, if you go 18 kilometers an hour over the speed limit, I'll tell you right now, you're committing an offense, but you're not going to get stopped. But if you drive like a real ass, you're going to be uh, you're going to be stopped. And if you're stopped and you've got the coronavirus or you've got a fever or something like that, then you're taking that police officer who's pulled you over uh, out of the line of duty and potentially, you know, threatening everybody else in the society. And of course, the police can't social distance when they've got to take your driver's license because they still have to investigate you. And if you have a fever and you're providing a breath sample, that is an issue. Right. And we yeah. should probably talk yeah. about that a little bit. Um, I have long before, before, you, before you get in there, I want to tell you a funny story from when I was in the traffic section. Go ahead. I was, I was running radar. We were having a terrible time on one of the bridges um, over the South Saskatchewan River here in Saskatoon and bad speed on this bridge. And I, I sit in a running radar at the bottom of the bridge and I catch this guy going 137 kilometers in a 50 zone. So I take off after him and I, you know, got to drive from zero to catch up to this guy is, you know, this is quite a while. So I finally caught the guy and, and I pulled him over and I walked up to the car and I, driver's license and registration, please. Sir. He says, I see, so I said, you know why you're being stopped? He says, well, I guess it was a little fast back there. I said, yeah, well, you're going 137 in a 50 zone. He says, yeah, but I was on the bridge and it's on a hill. I said, yeah, but you were going uphill. That doesn't count. <laughs> Good answer. Um, it's a funny thing about uh, going uphill and going downhill. I found police officers seem to be more angry about people going uphill speeding than when they're going downhill speeding. So, you, you know, I talked well, to them in traffic court and I'm like, here. everybody seems to be upset about the fact that, well, he was really pushing it as opposed to, yeah. you know, he was had his pedal down by, you know, a quarter of the pedal down. Um, it's true. Right. I, I enjoy speeding uphill. Uh, you know, I get some pleasure out of feeling that engine getting me up that hill that I would, if I was walking up it, would be an absolute nightmare. My wife won't let me drive if we're running late for anywhere because I, I can't, to this day, I can't really break the speed limit. I just feel so hypocritical about all those traffic tickets I wrote back in the day. But anyway, that's another story. Well, that's, that's, you know, I have my own, my own personal misery about that. <laughs> and that is, yeah. you know, I, I was a real chronic speeder. And when I got into university, I started controlling it because I thought if I'm ever a lawyer, I'm, I'm not going to want to feel too bad about it. But there was a couple of times I had one vehicle up to 135 miles an hour on the Yellowhead freeway at night um, in, uh, in Edmonton. And uh, I had another uh, on 
34th Street, which was like a single lane each way. No, there's nothing but a field on either side of it, but I had it up to 95 miles an hour in a Triumph Spitfire the same day I put the engine back into it. So I'm, um, I don't like to lecture people about speeding. I was 19. So long Yeah, time. you know, your, your, your stopping distance increases exponentially. So I think it's, I think you double the stopping distance for every 15 K. Well, that in the, uh, I, I have no idea about that. <laughs> go, go ahead. Sorry. Oh, it's, it's, no, it's, it's not, no, it's, it's, it's crazy bad, but the, uh, anyway. the, I, I've had some guys on from sense BC who have taken some significant uh, issue with the, the accepted stopping distances that are used, uh, and the accepted stopping distances that are often quoted by the police, um, would be, uh, appropriate for my 1953 Buick. Uh, but probably not for uh, a modern vehicle. But the um, in my Spitfire, it would have been the rolling distance because it would just have been a rolling ball of death. <laughs> I never, just, just so you know, I've never used the, uh, the, 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 the clock tables for stopping distance. The, the year that I was in the traffic section, I, I was a member of an association called CAT here, the Canadian Accident you know, traffic accident investigators and reconstructionists. And uh, we went out with a bunch, and these guys are all like, you know, PhDs in physics, specializing in vehicle kinetics, and they are able to do the calculations really differently. Now, this is also before the days really of ABS brakes, and that has fundamentally changed that, that ability to, to calculate those kind of speeds. But uh, certainly those, those the cars are a lot better than they were even 30 years ago, but... Um, anyway, speed well, 30, 30, 30, 30 years ago, most of the cars I had only had functioning brakes in one wheel. So that was part of the, <laughs> yeah. that was part of the issue. Anyway, I think, you know, we're, we will save our fever topic for next week. Um, because the, um, sure. that is a significant issue in breath testing. Maybe I'll have you on again for that because I don't know if, if Kyla's had you on for that, but that's a, that's something that I, I think bearing in mind the coronavirus cases are going up in numbers every day. Thankfully, no deaths today in British Columbia, but they're going up every day. What What are the numbers now in Saskatchewan? Uh, we have 95 confirmed cases. We've got uh, uh, four people in hospital, two of them in critical condition on respirators. And the good news is that we actually had three people who have been uh, treated, released, and have been deemed to have been, you know, over the coronavirus and how being released back into general ward healthy enough to so, be discharged those will be yeah, the three people yeah. who can take care of the rest of the people in saskatchewan i would <laughs> yeah i would love i'd love to talk to you about uh the, the fever issue and breath testing next week but i also would i would really like it if we could talk a little bit about your um immediate roadside prohibition program i've got some serious concerns about the way uh, breath testing is being done well, we I should talk about that because the uh, there's a bunch of changes to the Motor Vehicle Act, and I don't know that people have been paying attention. Other lawyers, I spoke to another lawyer who does this, and he was unaware of it. I suspect it's all going to be uh, put over because I don't think that they can get to third reading now. Uh, but I'll have to check to see whether or not they've got to that point. But, of course, you can't, you know, our, our Legislative Assembly can't sit. Um, to pass legislation unless they want to violate the law with respect to social distancing. So um, the social distancing thing, one wonders about that, especially when you see uh, the images from 
um, China where they were spraying entire streets with disinfectant, uh, whether or not we're doing mm -hmm. enough. But anyway, these are weird times. Um, oh, my but, goodness, uh, yeah. We should probably start a different podcast on the economic implications of this. Um, and, and whether or not our housing prices will be uh, reduced by 80% over the next six months. But um, cheer up, everybody. <laughs> yeah. Okay, so that is the end of Driving Law with Kyla Lee that did not have Kyla Lee this week because she is recovering. And I thank Jan Semenov, who is uh, still on the line with me. Jan, how can anybody get in touch with you uh, if they need to for your many, many things that you are really knowledgeable the, about? The, I'm going to do one more plug for CounterPoint Journal, counterpoint-journal.com. Um, please take a look at the four free articles that we've got, one on uh, uh, COPD, the other one on hand sanitizers. I just worked... Uh, for about a year with the New York Times on the expose article that they did on breath testing. There's a couple of interviews there. I actually had an opportunity to interview the New York Times before. There's a funny thing that happens in uh, Canada, and that is that we fail to recognize our own talent sometimes. Um, the uh, CounterPoint Journal is widely read by the thousand members of the DUI DLA, which is the um, sort of preeminent um, uh, DUI Lawyers Association in the United States. There's two of them. Uh, they're both good lawyers associations, and, and I'm a member, Kyla's a member of both of them, but the DUI DLA provides you with a access to CounterPoint. Um, so if you join that organization, yep. you get access to this. And I was um, just talking to a lawyer from another part of the country today um, about um, certain aspects of breath testing, and uh, had he been a member of the DUI DLA, he would have known the answer that I knew. Um, so, you know, and I know it as a result of, you know, knowing you and know, being part of the DUI DLA. So, um, CounterPoint Journal, uh, yep. people from Canada, yep. uh, you can get it and you can read it and you can learn something. And if you're sitting there wondering to yourself why you lost that impaired driving trial, uh, you'll find out that you lost it because you didn't know something that you should have known, and now you feel shitty about it. Sorry. <laughs> anyway, counterpoint. Don't send right. Off. Well, we've got we've got four years worth of articles in there. There's all there's more than a hundred articles touching on different aspects of of breath testing and general forensics that lawyers need to know. Everything from fingerprints to blood spatter to whatever. Um, so anyone can get in touch with me through there and I hope to speak to you next week, Paul. Yeah. So thanks a lot. That's the end of driving law with, uh, Kyla Lee, not having Kyla Lee. It's, uh, Paul Doroshenko and Jan Seminoff. If you need to get a hold of me, um, our website is vancouvercriminallaw.com. The phone number for the downtown office, 604-685-8889. Although I'm in isolation, I will still be able to return your call. Thank you once again for listening to driving law. Thank <laughs> you.